Hello, crime connoisseurs, and welcome to the inaugural Altitude Crime Podcast. I am so excited to have you joining me. My name is Amelia Allen, and like you, I cannot get enough of true crime. But in all the mediums I've watched, listened to, and read about true crime, I found there's a lot of cases in my own backyard that I didn't even know about. So the Altitude Crime Podcast was born. I will be covering Colorado crimes from the obscure to the infamous. If you're joining me from Colorado, I hope you'll learn from these crimes and be engaged to help victims and families in the ones that we can. If you aren't a resident, I hope you learn something new and get involved too. As you know, Boulder, Colorado was recently the scene of a shooting at a King Subarus grocery store. I want to take a moment to honor those victims of this horrible act. Let's take a moment of silence together for those victims. Thank you, everyone. While I know true crime can be so addicting, it is crucial to still understand that every victim we talk about had a future, they had people that cared about them, and that that was ended too soon in all cases. That was certainly the case in Boulder, and I appreciate you all taking a moment to acknowledge those 10 people who left this world too soon. So, on a lighter note, while you have the screen open, because I know you do, go ahead and follow or subscribe to Altitude Crime on whatever podcast platform you listen on. Uh, you can connect with me on Instagram at Altitude Crime Podcast or on Twitter at Altitude Crime. Uh, please drop me a DM with your thoughts on this episode uh, or write and suggest a crime. I'd love to do uh, what you guys want to hear. And I, I am sure you've heard of some crimes that I haven't as well. So I'd love to add those in. You can always visit the website altitudecrime.com for source materials, pictures and other cool stuff. Well, that's enough jibber jabber. Let's get on to our first crime. So when you hear Colorado crime, you may immediately think of John Benet Ramsey uh, or the Watts murders. But I ask you to think about Colorado itself. What comes to mind? The Rockies, skiing and snowboarding, legal marijuana. But your list would be incomplete without beer and lots of it. Huge manufacturers, boutique breweries, all of the beer. <laughs> I thought no crime would be more fitting to start Altitude Crime off with than the 1960 kidnapping and murder of Coors heir, Adolf Coors III. On the off chance you've been living under a rock your entire life, here's a little look at the 140-year-old family-owned Coors Brewery and its history in Colorado. This is a direct quote from their official website. Quote, in 1868, Adolf Coors, a German brewing apprentice, headed to America to live on his own terms by his own rules. Within five years, he founded the Golden Brewery where it still stands today. As the story goes, it was the hardworking miners of Golden who gave the beer its nickname. In the coming years, the banquet beer would become synonymous with Coors Banquet. When Prohibition hit Colorado in 1916, 
the brewery was ordered to drain 561 barrels of beer. Most would have given up, but not Adolf Coors. Adolf Coors didn't avoid the problem. Instead, he ran into the solution. He leaned on new business ventures like manufacturing porcelain and producing malted milk for candy companies. These ventures continued even after Prohibition. Bill Coors, grandson to Adolf Coors and brother to Adolf Coors III, was a rebel with a cause. After years of studying the traditional tin can, he introduced Coors in a more environmentally friendly aluminum container in 1959. And this is where we start our story, in 1960. Before I get into some background about Adolf Coors III, I want to give a big shout out to Philip Jett, the author of The Death of an Heir. As is common with true crime stories, it is so easy to find information on perpetrators, but not on their victims. This means that oftentimes victims don't get the voice that they really should. Jet's book was wonderful at bringing Adolf Coors III into focus, and much of the following information is from his book. If you're interested in reading more about this case, I'll have a link to the book in the website. Adolf Coors III was born on January 12, 1915, to Alice May and Adolf Coors Jr., and he was the grandson to the Coors' founder, Adolf Coors. He was a Cornell graduate and semi-professional baseball player, and he was posthumously inducted into the Colorado Ski and Snowboard Hall of Fame as an avid skier. He was well-liked by employees and had a laid-back demeanor, and for most people was endearingly called just Ad. His secretary, Joanne, said, quote, Ad always had time to speak and give you a smile, unquote. In 1958, Coors and his family moved into a 480-acre ranch in Morrison, Colorado that housed cattle and quarter horses. Uh, For those of you who aren't familiar, Morrison is on the outskirts of Denver, about 30 minutes from Capitol Hill. Perhaps the most interesting thing about Coors was that he was actually allergic to beer. So I guess the phrase would then be beer, beer everywhere, but not a drop to drink. In 1960, Coors was 44 years old and had been married to Mary Grant for 21 years. Uh, Mary was Colorado royalty in her own right. She was the granddaughter of Colorado's third governor, and her family had lived in Colorado since before it became a state. They had four children together, uh, Brooke, who at the time was 18, Cicely, who was 16, Adolf IV at 14, and their youngest was 10 years old, and that was James. However, Coors is most remembered as the CEO and heir to the Coors Brewing Company empire. And this infamous case. The morning of February 9th, 1960, started as normal as any. The 6-foot, 185-pound Coors completed a routine morning workout, followed by a shower and a checkup of his horses. He then went to the kitchen to have coffee with his wife, Mary. Coors had actually just met saying goodbye to his children as they had already boarded the school bus for the day. Coors then left his home to go to the brewery. At 10.20 the same morning, a United Dairies milkman named Dan Crocker was trying to complete his route and came across a bit of an inconvenience. 
As he approached Turkey Creek, there was a 1959 white over turquoise international travel all station wagon blocking the bridge that ran over the the riverbank. Since the car was idling and the radio was on, the milkman assumed the owner of the car was nearby. The milkman proceeded to honk multiple times, but the driver never came back to the car. Uh, So the milkman then decided in order to go on with his route for the day, he had to move the car himself. Upon getting closer, the milkman noticed a reddish stain on the bridge and a hat near the edge of the riverbank below the bridge. Dan soon called Colorado State Patrol to let them know about the seemingly abandoned car. At 11.35 a.m., the travel all was still at Turkey Creek Bridge. Now, this tells you a little bit about living in a simpler time. The state patrol did not immediately jump into action thinking the owner of the car had been abducted or met with foul play. At the initial stage, they just thought they were dealing with an abandoned car. They just wanted the owner to come back and move it out of the way of traffic. Upon checking the vehicle identification number... State Patrol finds that the car belongs to Adolf Coors III, whose home was near the bridge. Little did they know, the finding of the travel all was just the beginning of one of Colorado's most infamous crimes. Upon hearing the news of the abandoned car from the Colorado State Patrol, Bill and Joe Coors, who were Adolf's brothers, along with the Coors office manager, Ray Frost, head to the bridge to meet the patrolman at the scene. Once they arrive, they find some unsettling things, including a men's ball cap and a men's fedora, and deep tire tracks in the gravel road, indicating someone who left in a hurry. Seeing the ad's whereabouts may be turning into something sinister, Joe goes down the road to inform Ad's wife, Mary. At this moment, Mary is my hero. She's getting this news that could potentially be really terrible, But when they leave the house together to return to the bridge, she has the wherewithal to grab a picture of Ad for the patrolman to start circulating around as they're searching for him. I don't know if I would be in my right mind to do that. Once at the bridge, Bill, Joe, and Mary identify the baseball cap as Ad's, quote, luck hat. Mary also confirmed that Ad no longer wore fedoras and the size was too big anyway. She wasn't sure where that hat came from. While Mary is there, they also find drops of blood on the edge of the bridge. At 12.45 p.m. that same day, the sheriff's office is finally called by the state patrol when it's clear that the situation is bigger than just an abandoned car. It is all hands on deck when Jefferson County Sheriff deputies start the search. Colorado State Patrolmen, Jefferson County Jeep Patrol, Evergreen Troop of the Mounted Posse who are on horseback, Alpine Rescue Team, who are climbers, and volunteers also joined the search. At this point, they really had the best of the best for the terrain that they were needing to cover in the area. No method during the search was turned down. Bloodhounds helped but couldn't catch a scent. The Civil Air Patrol provided a helicopter for an aerial search. Dive equipment was brought in to search the shallow creek for clues, and even possibly if Coors had been thrown off the bridge and was in the creek. To ease the search of the creek, authorities end up diverting the water from the creek into an irrigation ditch. Doing this uncovered eyeglasses in the creek, not far from where the two hats were found out of the water. 
Billcores initially identified them as ads, and the Denver optometrists that had made the glasses were able to confirm that. The Colorado State Patrol, Horseback Posse, and Jeeps volunteers continued to search overnight, even when the sheriff's office took a little break just due to the cold and to it being dark. The entire time, Bill Coors refused to leave the scene of his brother's search, hoping for news of Ad. On a side note, I know this is a wild dream, but if we could get a search party like this in every case, I think we would make a lot more headway in criminal investigations. This is like the dream team. The search happened while the media looked on and the story was picked up nationally and internationally in the days after Ad's disappearance. There would be high pressure on the Jefferson County Sheriff Office to find Ad. The sheriff, Art Wormuth, started to have meetings with the press in his office during the initial days of the investigation. His relationship with the press would actually get him in some hot water a little later on. In the afternoon, Ad and Mary's children were pulled out of school and told the situation by their mother. Over the next few weeks, they spent time at Joe Coors, their uncle's house, and their grandparents' houses, just in case a kidnapper was casing the house looking for more family members to kidnap. That evening, the story broke to the people of Golden. The town was appalled. As stated in Jet's book, quote, To many, an attack on a Coors was an attack on Golden and everyone in it, unquote. 24 hours passed without a trace of Adolf Coors III, but that means that Colorado authorities get some needed help. Since Coors was not found by this point, the case was thought to be a kidnapping, and that enacted the Federal Kidnapping Act, also known as the Lindbergh Act. Now, this may sound bad for a true crime aficionado, but I never knew exactly what the statute meant. Uh, This statute basically says that if a victim is assumed kidnapped and not released within 24 hours, uh, law enforcement can assume that the victim has been transported either across state lines or into a foreign country. Uh, This allows the FBI to get involved as a jurisdiction has expanded outside of the state. Uh, If you want to read a little bit more about this statute, it is pretty interesting. I have a link to some information from Cornell University in the website. The act came into effect after the kidnapping of the Lindbergh baby in 1932, um, and it actually even made kidnapping across state lines uh, able to be punishable by death. The first from the FBI to make contact with Colorado authorities was Scott Warner from the Denver FBI office. He actually sent agents the night of the disappearance to be ready in case Coors was still gone in the morning at the 24-hour mark. Once the FBI came in, they and the local police split up and start working leads. Mary was the first FBI interview and told law enforcement about multiple people in the home seeing a yellow car around a few times in January. Sometimes one man was in the car and sometimes there were two men. Ad had even seen the car at one point and tried to confront the driver, but they drove off before he had a chance to talk to them. While the FBI interviewed people of the neighborhood and the town, local authorities continued the search near Turkey Creek Bridge. Upon a more detailed search, much more blood was found at the scene. There was blood splatter on multiple spots inside and outside the travel all. There was a pool of blood, most likely caused by a gunshot, 
with a spray that stretched 20 feet down from the bridge to the bank of the creek. Tension was mounting to find Ad because a large snowstorm was due to come in the next day and would most likely delay any further searches and possibly damage what evidence was out there. For those of you who don't know, February is brutally cold in Colorado and is often when we get the most snow. Uh, So local law enforcement knew they were up against with an impeding storm coming. Many people in the area heard noise coming from the bridge that morning, but no one actually saw anything. But neighbors definitely saw cars lurking around. The description of the cars was often different, including a 1954 blue-green Ford, a green Dodge, a white and gray Ford, and a yellow car. Uh, Multiple neighbors said that they had seen the yellow car, which they put at being a 1951 or 52 yellow Mercury, and it had been near the bridge on multiple occasions. Now, I do have to say that this blows my mind because who in their right mind would commit a crime in a bright yellow car? While witness reports could not agree on the type of car, they could agree that they had not seen any of them since Coors' disappearance. One neighbor named James Cable was able to glean some information on the license plate during his interview with the FBI. He recalled a 1960 Colorado plate and that it started with the digits AT-62, but he couldn't remember the rest of it. During their entire investigation, the FBI did not speak with the media and focused on finding Adolf Coors III. Uh, Meanwhile, Sheriff Wearmouth continued to have meetings with the press. He ended up releasing information about a Dodge scene in Morrison and claimed it was the sole vehicle of the perpetrator. He also told the media he believed Ad was still alive and that three men were involved in the kidnapping. Most frustrating to the Coors family was that he told the press when Adolf's parents were to land at the airport Uh, They had actually been in Hawaii during the beginning of the investigation and during Ad's initial disappearance. This led to a barrage of reporters at the airport when they boarded their return flight to Denver. The first big lead in the case was a ransom note that Adolf's wife, Mary, received in the mail the day after Ad's disappearance on February 10th, 1960. The note was postmarked from Denver at 3 p.m. on February the 9th. Since news of Ad's disappearance didn't hit the media until 5 p.m. on the 9th, they knew that the note had to be legitimate. According to Jet's book, the ransom note read, quote, Mrs. Coors, your husband has been kidnapped. His car is by Turkey Creek. Call the police or FBI. He dies. Cooperate. He lives. Ransom. $200,000 in 10s and $300,000 in 20s. There will be no negotiating. Bills. Used, non-consecutive, unrecorded, unmarked. Warning. We will know if you call the police or record the serial numbers. Directions. Place money in this letter and envelope in one suitcase or bag. Have two men with a car ready to make the delivery. When all set, advertise a tractor for sale in Denver Post Section 69. Sign ad, King Ranch, Fort Lupton. Wait at NA9-4455 for instructions after ad appears. 
Deliver immediately after receiving call. Any delay will be regarded as a stall to set up a stakeout. Understand this. Adolf's life is in your hands. We have no desire to commit murder. All we want is that money. If you follow instructions, he will be released unharmed within 48 hours after the money is received. Unquote. The FBI encouraged Mrs. Coors to do as the note said. The $500,000 ransom requested would be over $4 million today. Mary raised the funds and she ran the ad for the first time on Saturday, February 13th, just a few days after receiving the ransom note. Recorders were installed in all the family houses and the office phones at the brewery. Any phone a kidnapper could possibly call with information. But Mary never received a response from the supposed kidnapper. I feel like this day starts some of the most heartbreaking circumstances for Mary Coors. Just because the true kidnapper doesn't call doesn't mean the Coors household didn't get any calls. The amount of people that took advantage of the situation was insane. That night, she received a call from an imposter asking for the wrong amount of money. 50 more ransom letters and numerous telephone calls came in. And Mary had to speak to every phone call that came through, just in case it was the real kidnapper. Luckily for Mary... The FBI intercepted the pieces of mail that came into the house, and they took every fraudulent piece of mail really seriously. The Hobbs Act made it a federal crime to use the mail to try to extort money or threaten physical harm to someone, so all the phonies that came in, if they tracked them down, could face federal extortion charges. On February 15th, the FBI gave Mary a piece of mail that was a day late, as they were sorting through all the mail and packages that had come to the house. It was a posthumous act of love. Flowers with a card reading, quote, Happy Valentine's Day, sweetheart. You are and always will be my Valentine. Love forever, add, unquote. A gift from a most likely dead Adolf Coors III for Valentine's Day. While the kidnapper never made good on his ransom note with a call, the note was no dead end. There were no fingerprints on it, but it had some very distinctive characteristics. By the typewriting and writing style, investigators assumed that the suspect was well-educated. The font, or to be in period, the typeface, was unique and was believed to be from a Royalite portable typewriter. Royal Light was sold at the Denver Dry Good Company and at May DNF Company. There was an error in the keys that made the S on this particular machine print lower on the line than the other letters. And the paper it was typed on had an uncommon watermark. This paper was manufactured in 1959. And the paper and the envelopes in this style were sold at the same two stores in Denver as the Royal Light typewriters. After the arrival of the ransom note, Sheriff Wormuth was reminded to keep his mouth shut with reporters. Add, if he was still alive, was in danger now more than ever because evidence was mounting to find his captor. Wormuth's loose mouth was not appreciated by the Coors family. 
They instead entrusted the search for Ad to the FBI, and Wormuth was essentially left out of the bigger parts of the investigation and blocked from a lot of information that he could leak to the press. In addition to the ransom note, the FBI was also working the lead from James Cable, the yellow mercury with the license plate beginning in AT-62. This partial license plate narrowed the options down to four possible registered drivers with mercuries. But only one was yellow, and that was registered to Walter Osborne. Eight days after Coors' disappearance on February 17th near Atlantic City, New Jersey, a canary yellow 1951 Mercury was found burnt to a crisp. It was clear that gasoline was used to start the fire, and it was burned intentionally. It was the same type of yellow car that the neighbors of the Coors' had described lurking around Morrison. While much of the car was burned, the most important part, the vehicle identification number, was still visible. When the Atlantic City Police check who the car belongs to, they find that the owner, Walter Osborne, is wanted for questioning in regards to a kidnapping. The car is then shifted to the Newark FBI field office where it is reconfirmed the owner of the car is Walter Osborne. Walter Osborne immediately piqued everyone's interest. Not only did his car match the description of the one seen lurking around Morrison, Colorado, but he also seemed to have vanished from Colorado right around the same time Coors was abducted. The FBI descended on what was now Osborne's vacant apartment. The landlady told them that he had left the morning of the 10th, which was the day after the abduction. In Osborne's remaining effects, they made an unsettling find. Empty boxes for four sets of handcuffs and a bucket with a piece of chain in it. On March 5, 1960, the fingerprints found at the apartment on a Colorado driver's license application and the bucket with the chain in it were positively identified. The incredible thing is that these fingerprints had to be manually matched against 150 million prints in the FBI files, and they made the match in just three weeks. Uh, This match made the FBI even more interested in Walter Osborne, because Walter wasn't his real name. It was Joseph Corbett Jr., the name of a previously convicted murderer. Even though the reputation of the victim in this crime is huge, Joseph Corbett Jr.'s reputation at the time wasn't shrinking either. At the time of Ad's disappearance, Corbett was 31 years old and had already served time. Kind of. In 1927, Corbett's older brother died at the age of six years old after being struck by a car. Joseph Corbett Jr. was born 20 months later in Seattle on October 25th, 1928, where he was given the same name as his deceased brother. And I'm not trying to judge anyone, but I would like to know if anybody else thinks this is creepy. I get wanting to have, like, a junior, like, to pass on your name and whatnot, but it gives me a little bit of the heebie-jeebies. So please comment or DM me, let me know what you think on that. As a young adult, Corbett had a genius IQ and was enrolled as a Fulbright Scholar at the University of California, Berkeley. At the age of 20 in June 1949, Corbett's mother, Marion, fell from a kitchen balcony onto an iron well grate, 
And five days later, on June 12th, 1949, she succumbed to her injuries and died in the hospital. Uh, she remained unconscious during her hospitalization, so the full story of her death will never really be known. After her passing, uh, Corbett dropped out of school, even though he was only a year shy of graduation. Then just before Christmas in December 1950, Corbett had an altercation with Alan Lee Reed, a sergeant at Hamilton Air Force Base, which is near San Francisco. Corbett shot Reed in the back of the head twice, instantly killing him. Corbett claimed he had stolen a car and picked up Reed as a hitchhiker, and then when an argument ensued in the car, he said he shot Reed out of self-defense. On March 19, 1951, a jury convicted him to five years to life for second-degree murder. He spent the next year of his incarceration at San Quentin Prison, followed by three years in Terminal Island in southern Los Angeles. While at Terminal Island, Dr. Robert N. Smith had diagnosed Corbett as a schizoid, as it was called then, which we would now refer to as schizoid personality disorder. And I now want to, you know, just say that please be aware that people diagnosed with schizoid personality disorder are not inherently prone to these types of crimes. I think we're still, you know, working through a lot of stigma of mental health and sometimes diseases called things like this um, that, you know, maybe kind of scary people get can make us assume certain things. Um, when the disorder is actually really characterized by shying away from social interactions, uh, which from what we know about Corbett, he certainly was avoidant of relationships with other people, but this diagnosis is not a full explanation for the crimes he committed through his life, and it's definitely not indicative that anybody that has this disorder would do things like Corbett did. Corbett was then moved to the California Institution for Men in Chino, California. After three months of incarceration in Chino on August 1st, 1955, Corbett escaped the minimum security prison. When the lights were turned out for the evening, Corbett went down to the prison laundry where he had buried some clothing in the bottom of a big laundry cart. He changed and put his prison uniform back in the bottom of the laundry basket so it would maybe not be found for a little while. He escaped through a ground floor window in the laundry room. He took a rug from the laundry, this is actually pretty brilliant, and tossed it over the barbed wire so that he could climb the chain link fence and then get over that barbed wire without getting stuck. He ended up going to nearby Ontario, California, and then after that he moved to L.A. where he actually knocked over a supermarket from which he took $700. And then he picked up the alias Walter Osborne and made his way to Colorado. Once in Colorado, Corbett took on menial jobs that would keep him out of police view and under the radar. He soon had a growing need for more cash. In the summer of 1957, he and a co-worker tried to rob a Texaco bulk station. Uh, they took nothing because they couldn't get the safe open. On March 30th, 1960, eight weeks after Coors' disappearance, the FBI put Corbett on the 10 most wanted list. He was actually listed as an escaped convict for his Chino prison break. But for the FBI, he was now the chief suspect in the Coors case. Corbett was the 127th person to be placed on the infamous list. As a comparison, the FBI website says there have been a total of 524 on the list over the course of the list being active. 
So Corbett has been in pretty ruthless company because they don't put just any criminal on that list. (laughs) But despite this, law enforcement got no big leads on Corbett through the summer of 1960. FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover made this case his top domestic priority and described the hunt as the biggest and most important in the U.S. since John Dillinger. Corbett was really the FBI's first and only lead in the case. Coors Brewing had been having some issues with a possible union strike, so at first there were some rumblings that the abduction could be at the hands of the union. And while Ad would vote in agreement with his brothers on union issues, he had a much quieter disposition and it didn't lead him to be a target like his more outspoken brothers. Bill Coors was the first to rebuke the union suspicion, saying, quote, I don't think Ad had an enemy in the world. Revenge isn't part of this. If it had been Joe or myself, then maybe I could understand it, unquote. The case picked up momentum again in the fall of 1960. Sadly, the body of Adolf Coors was found before his captor was on September 11th. According to Jet's book, a pizza deliverer named Edward Green went to spend his day off target shooting near the Douglas County dump. The dump was about 40 minutes away from the heart of Denver in the southern direction towards Castle Rock. Edward descended down a nearby ravine. He soon found a pretty new-looking pair of dress shoes, gray flannel pants, and a brown belt. When he went to kick the pants out of the way, he heard something in the pants pocket. Uh, He checked the contents, and there was some loose change and a keychain with keys on it and a pocket knife. The keychain was engraved with AC123, the Roman numerals, and that was the initials of Adolf Coors III. Uh, He picked up the knife, he ran to his truck, and he drove to a service station nearby to report actually what he'd found to his mother, and she encouraged him not to call authorities. Uh, He did, however, give the penknife to a friend who was actually an Inglewood police officer, and his name was Charles Riddle. So Riddle then reported it to the Denver FBI field office. Now I know... Every true crime addict's brain is spinning right now, thinking about Edward's mom not wanting him to call the authorities, that it sounds super suspicious. Well, apparently the year prior, according to Philip Jett's book, Edward's brother had found a body near Aspen when he went fishing. Uh, So it seems his family just doesn't have great luck when it comes to exploring the great outdoors. So I think I can give her a pass on that piece of advice for her son. Once at the dump, the FBI found more articles of clothing, uh, including a dress shirt, a tie, a tie clip, socks, a white undershirt, shorts, a belt, and a glove. Mary and Bill would confirm the items to be ads later in that evening. There was an additional search of the dump the next day. Jet's novel noted that they continued to unearth more at the site during that search, including nine ribs a sternum, which is the breastbone, two clavicles or collarbones, a left humerus and radius, which is from your upper and lower arm, a fibula from the lower leg, uh, I'm not sure which side, six thoracic and three cervical vertebrae, and two scalpulae, which is shoulder blades, as well as a wristwatch. The bones were taken to the Douglas County Coroner's office. A lot of other bones were taken to the coroner, but they were identified as animal bones. The coroner concluded that due to the state of the bones, the person had been dead anywhere between six months to one year. 
It was clear by the state of the crime scene that the victim met their demise by someone else's hand. According to a look back from the case published by the FBI, the jacket and shirt found with the skeletal remains had two bullet holes in the back of each garment. This led investigators to believe the person had been shot in the back by their killer. Uh, Once the remains were analyzed, a shoulder bone found at the scene confirmed this theory. But despite the number of bones that were taken to the coroner, they could not make a positive identification that these belonged to Adolf Kors III. They would need a skull to make a positive identification. Eventually, a skull was found 200 feet away from the other bones, most likely displaced by a wild animal. The skull was rushed to the Douglas County Coroner's office where Ad's longtime dentist, Dr. Arthur G. Kelly, would perform a one-hour examination. He confirmed, without any doubt, that the skull belonged to Adolf Coors III. Although Coors's body was now found, a lot of questions were still looming, and the manhunt for Joseph Corbett Jr. was about to intensify. But my friends, you will have to learn more about the ensuing manhunt to find Ad's killer in our next episode. This is a two-parter, so make sure that you listen closely and you're ready to hear the next one next Sunday. Thanks so much for joining me today for the first ever Altitude Crime podcast. It may be the first, but it certainly won't be the last. So please make sure to follow or subscribe wherever you enjoy your podcasts. And I can just tell we're going to be friends. So go ahead and connect with me on Instagram at Altitude Crime Podcast or on Twitter at Altitude Crime. I'd love to hear what you guys think of the case so far. You know, have you heard of it before? Is this new to you? And feel free to suggest new ones. Also visit the website AltitudeCrime.com for source materials, pictures, and other cool stuff. And now that we're such good friends, why don't you leave a review and recommend the podcast to your peeps? As I mentioned earlier, um, if you want to read more about this case, I know we haven't completed it yet, but I can definitely recommend The Death of an Heir by Philip Jett. You'll see a link to the book on the website. Also, if you're needing something a little light after that part of the story, pop on over to Amazon where you can purchase my collection of adolescent poetry. Uh, Just search for the title A Teenager's Diary, and it's by Amelia Allen, if that's a little bit easier for your search. Uh, It is free to read if you have a Kindle Unlimited account, uh, so definitely check it out. So that's it for today, but join me next Sunday for another episode of Altitude Crime and the second part of this story about the kidnapping and murder of Adolf Coors III. I am so excited to have had you here, and we'll see you next Sunday. Episode 1, The Murder of Adolf Coors III, Part 1, was written, produced, and edited by Amelia Allen, and music is provided by podbean.com.